lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Dace alongside Totters and Aaron McIntyre. And all of you at 888-900-3393. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the program. D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and then follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Over at Parlor at Steve Dace. And then check out YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. As I try to see how many times I can say my name in the first one minute of this program. YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. That's our brand new YouTube channel. Uh, That's where you can go. How long is it going to be brand new until the subscription number is eh, respectable? It's brand new until then. Because then I need a built-in excuse, basically. Right? Yeah, pretty much. Hey, what's on your shirt? Oh, my my name. It's your name? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. And your point is? I just trying to get you oh, to okay. self promote some yeah. more. I'm on oh, your time. Oh. I'm on your team here. Okay, all right. I, I I just wanted to make sure you understood that my self promotion is a rising tide that lifts your boat. That you understand that, right? Yeah, that's that's why I was trying to get you okay. to say right. your name again. I, yeah. I, I'm feeling you. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, where, where else are we doing today? Oh, our colleague uh, Allie Beth Stuckey will be joining us at the bottom of the hour, talking about uh, her new book. We'll get into that. She apparently wants to make the case that. We need more than our own um, uh, self-actualization um, uh, desires, wants, that we need more than our own self, right? You're not a special snowflake. Um, I, I'm confused because I, I was assured by all the smartest people that I am all that I need. But I'm, I'm, I have to confess, and please, I'm not doubting the experts here. But I'm, I'm a little perplexed because I was also assured five days ago that Z- New Zealand had defeated coronavirus. I was assured. Just, to, I mean, just within the last week, I was assured. What's New Zealand? Exactly. I, I was assured that uh, Sweden had made a terrible mistake for five months. What's Sweden? Indeed. And I was assured last week that the Big Ten had a football schedule. So you'll forgive me if, again, not my place to doubt the experts here. Okay, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm a little concerned. I'm concerned at the current track record of some of these experts. That's all. Am I even allowed to do that? Probably not. Probably not. No, I agree. Uh, next hour, some Theology Thursday, and then three non-political questions. Hey, we are still looking for every opportunity we can on this show to help you find ways to take control away from a system that you know wants to determine whether uh, your kid has to wear a diaper on their face, can get an education, whether your job is essential, etc. Um, and when you look at the SCT and the ACT, here's the reality. Uh, these are run by far-left organizations. I mean, last year, these college boards had students reading Bernie Sanders' op-eds on the SAT guys. That was, 
That was part of the standardized test, Bernie Sanders op-eds. All right. The good news is there's a new company taking on these standardized tests. It's called the Classic Learning Test or the CLT. It's been around for just over four years. It's already been adopted by more than 200 colleges and nearly every college will now consider at least CLT scores as at least a supplemental component of your student's application. It's shorter than the SAT and the SAT and the ACT as well. Students can now take it from the comfort of their own home through remote proctoring technology but the first or the deadline for the first clt of this year is coming up here later this month august 22nd that's rapidly approaching so you want to make sure you know if you've got a high schooler or maybe you're one yourself i get notes all the time from uh, high schoolers that are listening to the show and things of that nature save your seat and register today uh you can go to cltexam.com Again, you can register for the August 22nd official college entrance exam at cltexam.com. Here's Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by an historic milestone. Today marks 150 days of 15 days to flatten the curve in the battle against coronavirus. In honor of this illustrious occasion, here's a reading from the scriptures, 2 Scientisms, chapter 6, verse 66. And then came the disciple to him and said, O prophet of scientism, how oft shall we flatten the curve? Till 10 days? Till 15 days? And the prophet saith unto him, I say not unto thee until 15, but in until 15 times 10. On with the rest of the montage, Joe Biden formally introduced his running mate Kamala Harris yesterday. Before the event, a crowd gathered to await their speech. I don't know why I threw that in there. It's just a random fact. Anywho, here's the duo's opening salvo. We have an economic crisis. Donald Trump is on track to break another record. On track to leave office with the worst jobs record of any American president in modern history. He inherited the longest economic expansion in history from Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And then, like everything else he inherited, he ran it straight into the ground. Six years ago, in fact, we had a different health crisis. It was called Ebola. And we all remember that pandemic. But you know what happened then? Barack Obama and Joe Biden did their job. Only two people in the United States died. Last year, Don Lemon debated whether Kamala Harris was black enough. Is she African-American or is she black or is she whatever? There is nothing wrong with that. There is a difference between being African-American and being black. Last night, he said this. People want to put people into a box like you have. Okay, either you're this or you're that or you're that. Okay, so she has multi, she's multi-ethnic, she has multi-ethnicities. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually really great. And on ABC News, George Stephanopoulos said this. Kamala Harris comes from the middle of the road, moderate wing of the Democratic uh, Party, not the first choice of progressives. Moving on, a new report from the UK's official office of four national statistics states that for every three excess deaths from the coronavirus, two more were caused from the lockdowns by people who needed medical care but were reluctant to go to the hospital in that country. Learning psychosis today, today's phrase is if it saves just one life. (laughs) Meanwhile, at the White House, Dr. Melanie McGraw-Piasecki, a neonatologist from Charlotte, North Carolina, came to speak about sending kids back to school. We're definitely going back as much as they'll let us. Um, In terms of being a pediatrician, 
I just think the science is so clear that the risk of death or hospitalization for children with this virus is so, so low. But we know the risk of missing school are catastrophic. According to the CDC and reported by the Washington Post, face masks with vents do not work to stop the spread of coronavirus. This comes days after WAPO reported the Duke study on cloth face masks ineffectiveness. Woke News, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot reacted to the continued violence in her city's streets. Yes, of course we have our challenges, but the thing that the federal government is uniquely qualified to do is things like pass common sense gun reform. Make sure that everybody has background checks. And finally, how to be a woke white person. Let's say you encounter another white person saying something as racially hateful as, I love black people. Now, at first glance, that could seem supportive to the black community. But as a wokeologist, you know that people never say what they mean. They mean what you think they mean. You can accurately determine what they meant by leaping to incredibly large assumptions that come from your mind, not theirs. Then you can inform them what they meant by what they said. In this case, it could be, you just think the black community is so weak that they need your love. (laughs) And now we've just exposed their white fragility. And that's what happened while we were away. (laughs) That was one of your best ever. Wow. I mean, the Moses in a mask. Come on, man. And that was just for starters. And that was in the opening 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that... He's an artist. That, that No. That was artiste. Okay? <laughs> Can only go downhill that, from here, that, boys. That's what that was. I mean, that was a magnum opus right there. You might want to consider tendering your resignation, actually. Because there's no way tomorrow's is going to be that good. You just keep your expectations low, and you'll never be disappointed. Indeed. Aaron's rundown. Brought to you by Home Title Lock. Don't let what happened to Deborah happen to you. She didn't learn what home title fraud was, home title theft, until she got an eviction notice in the mail. So what is it? Well, uh, cyber thieves have discovered that our titles to our homes are kept online for most of us these days. So they go online, forge your name on your deed, stating that you sold your home to them so that they can then refile as the new owner. And in Deborah's case, until she was about to get kicked out of her home, That's how she found out. Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title. They will protect you when your homeowner's insurance will not. And the instant they detect any tampering, they mobilize to shut it down. But first things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com, register your address to see if you're already a victim and don't even know this yet. And then while you're there, use the promo code Steve to get 30 free days of protection. 30 free days of protection when you go to HomeTitleLock.com and use the promo code Steve at HomeTitleLock.com. All right, let's get to Aaron's rundown. And today does mark a grim milestone if you believe in the rule of law, the Constitution, Individual liberty, the truth, sanity. Today is day 150 of 15 days to flatten the curve. Did you Photoshop that or is Mike Pence prophesying 150 days ago? Uh, that was a little bit of shock. Okay, I just, just wanted to make sure. Okay. Um, 150 days into the 15 days to flatten the curve. Here is the latest data on where the United States stands with coronavirus. All this data, except for one stat that I will update here in a moment, all of this data 
is as of today, August 13th. Only 3% of ER visits in America are for COVID symptoms. I've, I've made a mistake. That number has actually just been updated again by CDC. And my estimation was, or, or the number I reported to you, because these aren't estimations, these are the numbers. The number I reported to you was way off, folks. It's, it's actually 2.1%. It's a lot lower. 2.1% of ER visits in America are for COVID-19 symptoms. Only 1.9% of active cases are hospitalized. Where did I get that number? Well, you know, I did the complicated math of taking the 45,000 current hospitalizations that the CDC is reporting nationwide um, and divided it by the total number of positive cases, which is about 2.7 million right now in America. And when you divide 45,000 by 2.7 million, you come up with 1.9%. 1.9%. I was on a sports website yesterday where they were applauding the Big Ten's decision to cancel college football, noting that 5% of American COVID-19 cases are ending up in the hospital. Which, by the way, in and of itself would be an extraordinarily low number, but is way, way off that by three and a half times. So just a bit outside. It's actually 1.9%. Only 0.14% of Americans are currently hospitalized with COVID. Now, where did I get that number? Again, um, taking the CDC's number of 45,000 hospitalizations for COVID as of August the 8th and doing the very complicated math of dividing it by 331 million in a calculator because I don't trust my own hands. And it comes up to 0.014% of Americans are hospitalized right now. Only 0.7% of Americans are currently a positive case for coronavirus. And again, uh, showing my extensive mathematics skills. Um, I took the total number of positive cases reported by Worldometer and Johns Hopkins and divided it by the current estimated population of these United States of 331 million. And what you come up with is 0.7% of Americans currently are a positive case. Let's continue uh, with this assessment, shall we? Uh, The median age of death in America, according to CDC, is 78. 78. That's the average life expectancy in the United States. So for those of you wondering how come we're not seeing a a mass influx of excess death despite the 160,000 plus coronavirus deaths, it's because COVID-19 is primarily killing those who were probably going to die at the end of their life expectancy anyway. That's why. And then there's this number. We need more tests. We're not testing enough. The United States has conducted 41 million more tests than the next closest free country. 41 million. That country, by the way, is India, which has almost four times the population of the United States. Almost four times the population of the United States, and yet we have done 41 million more tests than India has. So on day 150 of this scam, can I ask these two questions? How much better do these numbers have to be for real life to return? How much, how much better? And then when is the curve finally flattened? Remember, we were going to flatten the curve to save the hospital system. We're currently 
currently only 0.014% of Americans are in the hospital with COVID symptoms. And by the way, I'm not even breaking out. Are they there pregnant and tested positive for COVID? The CDC does all of that, by the way. If, if I actually showed you the numbers of people in the hospital with COVID and no other maladies and symptoms, you'd cut yourself. That's why I didn't show you that number. Guys, It's I didn't show you that because enough people have died of COVID-19 and lockdowns already. I don't need to add to the depression numbers. But if I showed you what the actual breakdown is of people who walked into a hospital and were hospitalized, interned, testing positive for COVID with no heart disease, no pregnancy, nothing else, not a broken leg. They went in there with COVID symptoms and that's why they're hospitalized. They have nothing else on their chart other than here for COVID symptoms. If I showed you what that number was, it depressed me enough to learn it and I'm sparing you. By not showing it to you. Gentlemen, your thoughts as we mark the grim milestone of day 150 to flatten the economy. I'm sorry, um, to flatten our way of I'm sorry, uh, to flatten the curve. Your thoughts. Well, I'm, I'm reliably told by the killers of a multi-million dollar uh, industry uh, called uh, college football uh, that many jobs uh, and futures uh, are dependent upon, including Title IX athletes, that there's just still too many unknowns, Steve. So, you did maybe by tomorrow. I mean, yesterday when I did these stats for the first time or last night, the latest numbers on hospitalizations were 3.1%. This morning, the CDC updated the numbers again, and it's 2.1%. Maybe, who knows what it, how much this lower is, it will go tomorrow. This is where Scott Atlas and that pediatrician uh that we we say that thing let's say let's say for the sake of argument there really are it's a it's really a fake talking point for the bunch of people and you could tell it was a talking point because they were all saying it they just don't know what to say so they said that i mean that was politics but can 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 we talk about the knowns that's basically what you're saying yeah we know a lot yeah we do know we a lot. know a lot how about the fact and this is from researcher extraordinaire himself, Kyle Lamb, who did a breakout this morning on the case fatality rate. So how do you acquire that? Total number of cases divided by deaths. Now, that's not the greatest way to find out the mortality of a disease because it doesn't necessarily tell you how lethal it is. But it, from a public policy standpoint, again, we're not doing epidemiology here, immunology. We're doing public policy, right? And so it is a good way of looking at it from a public policy standpoint because you're trying to make holistic decisions. What do we shut down? Who do we quarantine? What do we take away? What do we bring back, right? Since July 1 in this country... The case fatality rate for coronavirus has dropped from 4.8% to 1.5. 1.5%. We're told, why can't we be more like Europe? Do you know what Europe's case fatality rate is since July 1st? 1.5%. Why can't we be more like Asia, where they all wear masks? They wear masks to not have the babies they don't have. They wear masks to make babies they don't have. Why can't we be like that? Asia's case fatality rate, 1.9%. It's actually higher than ours. These are the things we know. We know these things. It is correct. We don't know what long-term subplots of of. I can't even say the word right now. We don't have medical problems that this virus will cause. We don't know that, right? We don't. 
But keep in mind, as I've been pointing out while acknowledging that truth, right now we know the least amount about all those things than we're ever going to know. We're ever going to know. Right now we're as ignorant about the virus as we're ever going to be. Right now we're as defenseless to the virus as we're ever going to be. Right now. The first six months after a pandemic alleged to have began, which I think actually began several months before that, but okay, I'll go with it for now. We're never going to have less knowledge. We're never going to be less forearmed. We're never going to have less effective treatment than we've had these last six months, right? Exactly. And look at these numbers without all of the knowledge, without knowing all of the variables. Look what we've managed to do without knowing these things. What will we do when we do? I don't know. How does it get better than this? How do the numbers get better than this? What's the, what's the answer? We have to eradicate this? There's only been one virus I'm aware of in all of history of our species that we have eradicated. Smallpox. It took a millennia. And it took a real vaccine, by the way. A real one. Not the one we're being told we're, that's coming next year. That's a glorified flu shot. If it ever arrives... But a real one. So good that we don't even give smallpox vaccines out anymore. Like anywhere in the world, the UN says you don't have to do it. So then how much lower does it go? Aaron, your thoughts. Do you have a uh, a link, Steve? To quote Cuba Gooding Jr., you are hanging on by a very slim thread. If that, and I dig that about you. Two, two things, seriously. If that montage wasn't as brilliant as it was, I might have stabbed you. But since that montage was as good as it was, that made, that, that actually made me laugh this time. Yes, I spend my goodwill as fast as I take it in. Yes. Um, two, two quick things. You work for the Treasury. Uh, you know how we, yeah, you know how we, uh, we, we always heard during March and April, exponential growth, exponential growth, exponential growth. You know, we, we heard that over and over again. Here's some exponential growth for you. 15 days to flatten the curve, 30 days to slow the spread, more than 365 days for a vaccine, and an infinite number of days to discover the long-term effects of this virus. That's some exponential growth for you. And along the lines of what Todd was saying about, uh, about college football, something else we've heard over and over again from the academics and from the elitists trying to pull the strings and tell us how to live our lives, where to go, and probably how to go to the bathroom... We can just press pause on the economy. That uh, virologist from the University of Michigan the other day, what did she say? We could just press pause yes. on the football season. Yes. Here's something that maybe we should think about. If we can just press pause on every, anything, here's something we should press pause on. Uh, any more days to, to flatten the curve. Amen. Can we, can we press Preach. pause on that? Preach. Maybe we can press pause on the lockdowns. Maybe New Zealand can press pause on the lockdowns. Since they press pause on everything else. Can we, can we press pause on all the bad things? Why do we have to keep going on and fast forward? Not even fast forwarding through. We're going frame by frame by frame by frame by frame through the, the worst parts of the reaction to this. Can we, just, can we press pause on the worst parts for just once? For, for a little while? That, that'd be nice. The other big news today we have to mention. Uh, this broke before we had a chance to insert it into Aaron's montage, but we would be remiss if it didn't come up. There is an announcement of 
normalization of relations and a peace accord between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And if you have been following a lot of what's been going on with Mideast foreign policy, which has gone to the back burner because of what coronavirus has done to our way of life, obviously. But I, I'm beginning to wonder, you know, um, as long as I can remember, you know, pretty much since the peace accords between um, Sadat and Begin uh, under Jimmy Carter, the Egyptian, uh, that's how many years ago? 1979? We were less than 10. Yeah, 41 years ago, maybe. Okay. The premise has been since Egypt normalized relations with Israel, the premise has kind of been operating that Mideast peace, the path to Mideast peace was paved through the, the solving the Palestinian-Israeli question. That was really the main issue. What I find interesting is if you watch the way the Netanyahu and, and Trump administrations have been operating since uh, the Palestinian, uh, the, it's the, it's, this is just Abbas and Hamas is just the rehashed, updated PLO of, of our childhood, basically. Since they've rejected the latest overtures of peace back in, I think it was 2017, what I'm beginning to wonder looking at just the behavior is if the Trump and Netanyahu administrations have reversed the paradigm of Mideast foreign policy and have largely given up on the Palestinian question and instead have said, instead of trying to get to some normal normalization in the Middle East from the inside out, let's do this from the outside in. Let's, let's see if we can create, <clears throat> pardon me, um, we can create threads of peace with Israel and the rest of her Muslim and Arab neighbors, aside from Iran and the PLO, just bypass them. And it appears they may be on the path to doing that. I mean, Netanyahu and, and uh, has, I think, didn't one of the Saudi crown princes visit Israel or have or meet with Netanyahu, I believe, uh, in the last year or so? I mean, a lot of this stuff that was going on in 2017, 2018, 2019 it feels like it was 25 years ago now because of everything that the virus has done to our way of life this year. But if that is indeed their plan, I think it's a brilliant plan. And it's one of those things too, that you think to yourself, why didn't anybody think about this before? Instead of, I mean, I, when I was on the Gingrich campaign, he said something at one of the debates that got him into hot water and a media guy called me up. How can you defend this? I'm like, well, because it's true. Um, but uh, uh, Newt said that the Palestinians are a made-up people. There's no such thing as the Palestinian people. He, he was right. I think a lot of Americans think that these, this is like, you know, the 2,000-year the argument between, uh, you know, Isaac and Ishmael, you know, over the promised land and the Palestinians are descendants of, you know, the people that were in Canaan. Um, if the most Americans even know what that place is, they're not. Largely, they are people from Jordan and other Arab countries that didn't want them. And so they just kind of got dumped into this place. But they're not. There's no such thing as a Palestinian person. As as you're... As you're presented that in the media today that doesn't mean by the way the people that refer to themselves as palestinians aren't uniquely and wonderfully made in the image of god i'm not saying that it doesn't mean we treat them like chattel i'm not saying that that's a different question though than the larger geopolitical question of what's their claim on the land the answer is none they don't have one
Historically, they don't have one. That's why they've had to resort to terrorism in order to acquire it. They don't have a legitimate means to one. If I would argue that by even giving them their own authority, the Israelis went too far as it is in even giving them that. And it appears maybe the Israelis and the United States are done negotiating with them and the terrorists that they've put in charge of their um, fake country. And they're just going to go kind of around them then. They're going to go to the other Arab countries and say, hey, what do you like better, selling a bleep load of oil or, or dying in a stupid war? Because we kind of like buying your oil. What do you prefer, rich or dead? And I think you're starting to see, take the PLO question off the table. A lot of these Muslim Arab countries are like, on second thought, you know, we can kind of praise Allah in a nicer house. We don't really have to keep blowing ourselves to smithereens. So if that is the strategy, and I, I and I, I think it is one. I mean, because there's just been too much of the of these sorts of announcements in the last couple of years. I think it's a pretty brilliant strategy, Todd. Do you think there's any to the fact that American weakness at the moment? I mean, they they didn't like America's strength. They resented in the past, but now it's weakness. And it's clearly showing a lot of weakness. Like, they got to get in while the getting's good. Who's the they? Huh, you know, in, in terms of the, the Arab street, like, they, they wanting to wanting to be part of a system that can pay. I think, actually, the impetus here was the speech the president gave in Riyadh in May of 2017. And I, that he gave in front of a bunch of Muslim leaders where he said, hey, we're... We're not here to tell you how to live your lives and what religion to be, okay? Stay out of our way. We'll stay out of yours. You want to do business with us? We'll make you rich. If you don't, cool. Have a nice life. Enjoy Allah. Stay the hell out of our way and never the two shall meet. I think that really did reset the board. I do. All right, we'll come back. Allie Beth Stuckey is going to join us here next. Folks, losing your hair is no fun. And you know, it also isn't that much fun if you decide, hey, I'm going to go ahead and go see my doctor and uh, get a prescription to finally deal with this. And then I'm going to try not to go broke when I find out what those prescriptions to not go bald cost. Or here's another option. You can try Keeps from the comfort of your own home where you're going to get the same doctor recommended FDA approved hair loss treatment, but Keeps offers the generic versions for about half the cost. And one more thing you're going to love about Keeps, how about the convenience? It's all online. So you just answer a few questions, snap a few pics of your hair, and a licensed doctor will review your info and recommend the right hair loss treatment for you. And then it is shipped discreetly to your door. So how about a special offer to get you started? You're already going to save a ton of money by going with the generic versions from Keeps. They'll throw in a special offer just to get you started. Half off your first order. 50% off your first order right now when you go to Keeps.com slash grow. K-E-E-P-S for Keeps.com slash grow. Gentlemen, just saw these TV ratings numbers reported by sportscaster Clay Travis. Tuesday night's Tucker Carlson program outdrew the NBA game with LeBron James and the Lakers. Three to one. Four million viewers to a million and a half. Sean Hannity outdrew the, 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 the second game of that NBA doubleheader. Four, four million viewers to 950,000. And then Tuesday night prime time, Fox News even beat the NBA with viewers 18 to 40 
nine. Yo. People just don't want... Uh, they just... They don't want you to sully their escape. They just don't. The numbers say it all. They just don't want it. Maybe there's a market for that in China. I suppose the NBA could try that, being they are the official league of the shy comps. But those numbers, if, if you were really, really being honest with yourself, would, would, would insult you if you were the NBA. Scare the hell out of you, frankly. I think they take it as a point of pride. Yeah. Instead, you'll get another Greg Popovich lecture. Yes. Full of things that aren't really true. Another thing you've been hearing a lot that's not true in, in our day and age is you do you. You do you. And we didn't get it this year because coronavirus, if it did one, if it committed one merciful act, is it spared us from the inane attempts of corporate America to bend over backwards, I guess we'll say, to appease the rainbow jihad every June. And they just get increasingly more ridiculous. Last year, you know, we go to the movies a lot in the summertime and the big event movies come out. Last year, they kept running this Diet Coke commercial before every movie. You know, with their rainbow-colored flavors. And who cares what flavor you like? You do you. Every time I saw that commercial in a crowded theater, I would blurt out, What if you suck? What if you suck? Should you still do you if you suck? Should you still do you? Death Row is full of people who said, Dude, you, you got I gotta be me. You do you! Right? What's the standard there? Our colleague here at The Blaze, um, Allie Beth Stuckey, has written a book tackling this lie it's called you're not enough and that's okay and she joins us now here on the steve day show it's good to have you back Allie. how are you thanks so much thanks for having me so what i I gotta ask you know these last few months a lot of us have been disconnected from friends and family and miss the things we enjoy in life did you just decide that you know i i I really kind of like um, being on, on on my own and a lot. I, I want to be disliked more. So let me write a book that goes right to the heart of every lie told in every woman's magazine today. Is, is I mean, are, are, are you are you okay over there, Allie? Yeah, yeah. I just love the criticism. I love the hate so much. It fuels me. So I decided to write this book to make even more people angry. This book has actually been about two years in the making, and I wrote it for the exact reason that you articulated that this is the lie underneath so many lies. So a lot of people have said to me, I'm surprised you wrote this book. You talk so much about, you know, politics, culture, news, theology, things like that on your podcast. This seems a little bit different. And the truth is, it's not really. What I'm trying to tackle is this idea of trendy narcissism, this lie that you are enough for your own happiness, you're enough for your own truth, you're enough for your own purpose and fulfillment, and you need to be the center of your own universe and do you, do what you want to do. It's created a bunch of people who believe that they are their own God, Uh, they determine their own truth, and they will sacrifice anything on the altar of self-love as long as it means making them happy. Yes, that has personal implications, but it also has political and social implications as well. So this lie that you are the center of your own universe, that you are sufficient to be all the things that you need is really the lie that's underneath a lot of our personal and political and societal problems right now. Give us some examples of that. 
So we go through five myths in the book. One of them obviously is that you are enough. This is a this is a Christian book. And so we go through each myth and we uh, say, okay, here's where you're hearing this lie. Here's where you're seeing it. Here's why it is a lie, why it's just logically inconsistent and why it doesn't line up with reality. And here is truth from God's word. Here's the truth from the gospel to release you from this lie that you have to be your own sufficiency. The fact of the matter is, is that God made us finite, infallible, flawed, incomplete. We're supposed to depend on him for our strength, for our sanctification, most importantly, our salvation. He made us to be dependent on him. So we need to stop lying to ourselves and pretend like we are enough the way we are, take our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on our creator who doesn't change. Um, But when we believe this lie, when we worship the God of self rather than the God of scripture, when we say, I have to be enough for all of these things, we also find ourselves believing other lies. The second myth we tackle is that you determine your own truth. All of us have heard this phrase, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. What's good for me is what's good for me and what's good for you is what's good for you. Now, a way that we see that manifesting itself in society is through something as gruesome as abortion in the name of personal autonomy and the name of doing me. And the name of, you know, building the life that I want to live as a career woman or whatever it is, um, I am even willing, uh, or someone would say that they are even willing to sacrifice their unborn child on the altar of self-interest. So that is how far um, this epidemic of narcissism has gone. I talk about something in this chapter called the cult of self-affirmation. And it's a lot of what we just described. And in the cult of self-affirmation, the goddess self, the two highest values are authenticity and autonomy. That means you do whatever you want to do and you control whatever you want to control and you are willing to justify anything, no matter how immoral, in the name of authenticity or autonomy. So we see that through abortion. We see that through radical gender ideology. doesn't matter what biological reality is. How I identify is how I identify and everyone else needs to acquiesce to my projected reality and truth. So um, all of this has disastrous implications, but also widespread implications. I think the answer to this question determines a strategy for a movement to counter this, which which would be the successful strategy. And that, that question is, did the the spirit of the age that you're describing, did it did it conquer or diminish the Judeo-Christian or biblical worldview that was kind of the cornerstone plumb line of, of America for a couple of centuries? Or did the abrogation of that worldview leave a void and nature abhors a vacuum? And so the spirit of the age swooped in and said, hey, we are fine to take it from here. Which do you think it is? Hmm. I think it's probably a little bit of both and. So this idea that self-esteem, that low self-esteem is the reason for all of society's problems has been around for a really long time. I'm writing this book in 2020, but the lie um, that the most important thing in your life is that you feel good about yourself has been around for decades, both in and outside of the church. We have been told by psychologists, by social scientists, that crime will go down, that academic failure will stop, that success will go up if people just start to feel good about themselves. We've been fed this over and over again, completely to the point to where my generation, the millennial generation and Generation Z has been told in general that you are special no matter what, 
that you are awesome no matter what, that you get a trophy just for showing up. And we have been told over and over again, just feel good about yourself. Everything else will fall into place. Just do what you want to do. You're entitled to do what you want to do and everything will fall into place. And unfortunately, that has not led to us being happier. Um, Generation Z, I actually heard a pastor say the other day, cited a study that said 55%. So the majority of Generation Z, those people are about 23 and younger, report to have bad mental health. So they're depressed, they're anxious, they're isolated, they're lonely. Millennial generation has similar numbers. The vast majority of both generations just are not doing well. We're miserable. So it can't be true that self-esteem, low self-esteem was the problem. I don't think we have a self-love deficit in this country, especially not among the younger generations who have had our worlds revolve around us our entire lives and they're so used to instant gratification. Um, unfortunately, it's making us more miserable. So to answer your question, I do think that a lot of this, this idea that self-esteem is the answer to all of our problems, I think it's a, in some ways, it's a legitimate reaction to maybe what was legalism, both in and outside of the church, what was a real feeling from a lot of people, especially women, that they couldn't measure up to the different images that they were seeing or just a repudiation of kind of legalistic Christianity and people feeling like they couldn't measure up to purity culture or the legalism that was kind of pushed on them by the church. And so they said, you know what, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I do think some of it is a legitimate and sincere reaction to that. Um, and sure, you could maybe blame it on some of the failures of the church. Here's where I think the problem lies today is that we have trapped ourselves, even the church has trapped ourselves in this false binary that either we tell people to love themselves, to adore themselves, to tell them how to tell themselves how awesome they are, or they should hate themselves. So they say, okay, well, no, we need to tell people that um, they should love themselves. That's a false binary. Uh, Christianity calls us not to self-obsession, not to self-adoration, not to self-worship or to self-loathing, but to self-forgetfulness. And that's where the freedom comes in. We get to take our eyes off of ourselves and uh, put it on, put them on the God who doesn't change and who he says that we are. What I hear you saying is, there's a nuance to the message, which is you are irredeemably broken. You cannot do this. Okay. No matter how smart you are, no matter how handsome you are, how beautiful you are, how athletic you are, how wealthy you are, you cannot do this thing called life with meaning and purpose on your own. You cannot, but your life also has an extremely high value, which is why, you know, God himself came into human form to put his life in exchange for yours. So that's a difficult message to communicate, Allie, at the same time. The idea that you are irredeemably broken, but you are, carry a high amount of value. There's no way to do that without putting God into the equation. No, there's not. I, I've been on a lot of shows that have begged me to say, okay, can you tell me what you know, non-Christians, what secular people can get out of this book. And of course, you know, there's truth in it. There's practical advice and practical wisdom. And sure, if you do as I, you know, recommend in the book, get married, have kids, stop putting off commitment, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, be a part of your community, go out and volunteer and serve other people. I do believe that, sure, you can find joy and meaning and fulfillment in those things. You reject narcissism. You reject the lie that you have to have a certain level of self-confidence before you can go out and love other people. I do believe that your life will be better, but you're going to be missing the most vital 
material component, the only eternal component, the spiritual component is that your soul is still lost. You are still going to be in those cases, depending on yourself and your strength to be everything that you need. And there is such good news that Jesus Christ became our enoughness. He became our righteousness. He became our perfection. Um, He became all the things that we're trying and failing to find inside ourselves. You articulated the nuance really well. People read the title of this book, You're Not Enough, and they say, oh, you're telling me to wallow in self-deprecation and just to hate myself and to embrace you know, my insecurities and to just be self-loathing. That's not true at all. I actually argue that self-loathing is just another form of self-obsession. Mm-hmm. I'm saying let's stop obsessing over what we think of us and to take our eyes off of ourselves. And again, to put our eyes on Christ, it's such a relief to know that we aren't our own gods. Name of the book, You're Not Enough, and That's Okay. Our colleague here at The Blaze, Allie Beth Stuckey. Great conversation, Allie. Good luck with the book. God bless. Good to have you back. All right, take care. Thanks so much. You bet. The reason why you cannot articulate that nuance without God is because if I'm irredeemably broken and I have, but yet I have high worth and value, where does that worth and value then come from? Because without God, my worth and value comes from what I can do for other people, what, what, what other people think of me, what talent I have, what ability I have, what skill I have, right? So if in the end, though, I can have all that talent, all that ability, all that skill, and it's still not enough, then where does my worth come from? The worth comes from outside of yourself. That's why I don't think you can navigate the waters that, that Allie is charting here without putting God into the equation, Todd. Well, one of the worst things the church does today is allow people, as she said, to fall into the thin gruel of the false binary of uh, total love or total hate. It's so stupid, and the churches have let it happen. The psalm that I chose to have read at my wedding was Psalm 85, and it talks about the concept of justice and peace shall kiss. That balance between justice and mercy, righteousness and mercy, it, it that's the stuff that fuels life. And having children, you know this. I mean, we... we it's right with daughters, you know, mm-hmm. the way the way we love them, absolutely steer them. And this is what you're excellent at. But when they fall out of line, they, you know, there, there aren't pats on the head there. And you and I, the way we do it, I mean, it is it is direct. It is harsh. It doesn't always feel good at times, but it's because both of them exist mm-hmm. that you can learn from mm-hmm. both. They both of them work. If you only have one and not the other, they will end. They will be forfeit. They will be. You're right back in the Garden of Eden, and did, you're with some version of. Did God really say? You wonder why. Um, you wonder why my generation and the generations surrounding the millennial generation, honestly, uh, have increased in- instances of of however you want to describe depression it's because an increasingly secular culture and when i say secular i mean apart from the true god we have plenty of gods right now and we are very religious but eventually eventually you become your own god when you you when when you forsake ultimate truth transcendent truth and moral objectivity for moral subjectivity yeah yeah eventually you become your own god yeah and we suck as God. That's why we're not him. And it's that's a, why he is. It's a terrible burden to carry on your own. <laughs> it's a hard burden to carry on your own. No question. We'll come back. Theology Thursday. It's next. Stay tuned.
Back with Hour 2, live and on demand on Blaze TV radio podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you at 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can also like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Parlor at Steve Dace, our new YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Steve Dace. And again, that's D-E-A-C-E. If you haven't done so already and you listen to the podcast, we thank all of you that do that. Please leave us, though, a five-star review. Thousands of you have done that for us already. Thank you. Those, I'm told, help the show to grow. Even if that's not true, we appreciate the positive feedback. So thank you. Uh, But if you haven't done so, we'd appreciate one from you, too. And make sure you keep hitting that subscribe button as well, because that shows the mucky mucks here at The Blaze that more and more of you are listening. So thanks for all of that, too. Um, coming up at the bottom of the hour, we are going to be talking three non-political questions. Uh, but let's begin with Theology Thursday, brought to you by realestateagentsitrust.com. If you're going into the real estate market, first of all, you want to make sure you can find an agent that you can trust in any era, in any era. Um, and that's not easy to find because they're not going to tell you on their website my grand plan is we just keep holding open houses or if I don't think you've got a live one, you know, I'm going to probably slow play you. (laughs) They're not going to just say that. Okay. So uh, who does the vetting process for you? Well, the name kind of says it all. That's what they do at realestateagentsitrust.com. Every agent there has wanted to be vetted, uh, has been transparent about their record. The website has vetted them and Hey, if, if they pan out, if they pass, That's how they get on there to be referred to you wherever you live across the country. So go to this website. If you're going in and in certain times like these at any times, but especially in uncertain times like these, go to realestateagentsitrust.com. Again, that's realestateagentsitrust.com. For Theology Thursday this week, we're going to tackle another question from one of our listeners slash viewers by the name of Jeff Graver, who's in the National Guard. And he wants to know, at what point does someone decide to leave their church? Our church is battling two issues, how to deal with racial reconciliation and whether or not to reopen. On the former, it seems as though we are sacrificing the purity of the gospel, all for the sake of diversity, which is noted by recent stances on certain issues and recent hires. On the latter, the church has chosen not to reopen until next year, partially due to the fact some of our campuses meet at high schools that we can't get into. Uh, We're a prominent church in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have a multi-site approach with a large outreach in the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area. And my wife and I wonder, when is it time to pull the Band-Aid? We've always been taught leaving a church should be a difficult decision, not one made on the whim. And I'm trying to walk through these issues with my church all the while I'm deployed in Kuwait, which makes this even tougher. Appreciate the response. Well, first of all, Jeff, man, God bless you, and we appreciate your service uh, on our behalf and on the country's behalf, number one. So let's let's make sure we make a note of that first. I, I'm going to walk you through the one time, there's two times I've left a church, and walk you through the decision-making process that went into each of those occasions. 
that were not coronavirus related, but may or may not tie into your own thought process here. The first time is we went to, at the time, it was a very successful suburban megachurch here in Des Moines. It's actually no longer uh, in business, I guess is how we'd put it. Um, the church is gone. And that church originally began meeting in a middle school here in town. And it was the church that um, that I was converted in. How I got to become a member of this church is after we brought our daughter Anna home, our oldest, started feeling the pull, which you know you can look back on now, that's the Holy Spirit, but I started feeling the pull like this kid is kind of doomed with me as a dad, could definitely use more of a support system. And decided I wanted, I had a local sports talk radio show in Des Moines. And out of the blue one day, I just said, hey, wife and I are thinking about joining the church. Email me your suggestions. Because I'd had a pretty extensive background in political activism with college Republicans and other things. I, I, I knew what the liberal denominations were. I didn't know theologically where they stood. I just knew I didn't want to go to church with liberal politics. So anything that belonged to like the World Council of Churches or National Council of Churches, all those denominations, I just eliminated them. Anytime someone sent me an email with that suggestion, I just eliminated it, filed it in the circular file. Um, For other churches that weren't part of that, you know, uh, Amy and I actually would interview pastors. We actually went and met with pastors all over town, various denominations. And I would always ask the question that I think when you're an unbeliever, you think this is clever and or, or some variation of this question. And I would always ask, so there's no other way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ, you think, right? Yeah. Well, what about the guy in the outback, the aborigine that no missionaries ever reached and he dies saving a school bus of kids, giving his own life for all these innocent children? Does he go to hell? Right? You've, variations of these kinds of gotcha questions, okay? And I really wasn't satisfied with, with, with the answers I was getting. And one day, um, uh, the pastor of this church that at the time was meeting in a middle school here in town, he actually agreed to come to our apartment. We lived in a crummy apartment in, uh, in, in a suburb, and we wanted to live in this suburb. And so to be, to be able to afford it, we had to like live in the worst apartment complex in this suburb. And that's where we first lived when we were first married. And he came to our crummy apartment on a Saturday for two hours and just let us interview him and ask questions. And then I finally got to this question that had, you know, I didn't really like the answer I'd gotten from several other pastors. And I, I asked him this question and he looked at me and he said, Steve, I trust in the mercy, the infinite mercy of a God who would spare not even his own son on my behalf to deal justly with any, any kind of exception that you think you could create or come up with. And I liked that answer a lot. If that answer sounds familiar to you at all, it's because now that I am somewhat in this position, I use this answer at times when I get these kinds of gotcha questions. All right? So the next Sunday, we attended their church. Had the slam and praise team, all the accoutrements of your stereotypical suburban mega church. Amy loved it right away. Uh, me, not so much. Okay. 
Early on, they brought in this guest speaker named Josh McDowell. Years later, I would actually joke with Josh about this. They brought in this guest speaker named Josh McDowell. And he opened his talk with a question. Where in the Bible does it say the Lord helps those who help themselves? And suddenly now, a lot of these messages and stuff I didn't really care about. But now, I mean, that's like a creed of modern conservatism, right? I'm like, we're sitting on these middle school bleachers. I'm like sitting up straight. And at the time, I weighed about four bills. I'm like sitting up straight. I'm like, all right, finally. It's been weeks. Now this is what I came for, right? And then he says, and the room is kind of murmuring and quiet. Can't think of where it's at in the Bible. And McDowell says, it's actually not in the Bible. And I, I was about to jump up right there. My wife had to like push me down. I was about re- heretic. I was about to lose it because then I found out later it's it's actually not in the Bible. Pretty much contrary to the entire Bible's narrative. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I mean, Amy got involved in discipleship classes and stuff. And I was just, it was just uh, kind of touchy-feely for me. One day they run an ad uh, for Promise Keepers. You guys, I've told this story before. I end up going, bam, okay. I get converted. Church ends up buying land in another suburb. We build our own facility. Wife and I are very, very active in this church. Over the next few years, I'm, her and I are actually teaching a discipleship class together and um, really enjoying it. But now I'm beginning to mature in my faith. And I'm noticing that there's a lot of things we are glomming over. And we don't ever talk about. And because now my local sports talk radio show has grown in popularity here in town, I kind of get an audience anytime I want. You know, the pastors and stuff. And I'm like asking questions. I'm like, you know, one time one of them said, well, we, we often debate with ourselves as a staff how much of that stuff we think people really need to know. I remember thinking at the time, eh, eh, but okay. I mean, I, what do I know? You know, I mean, it didn't sit right, but I just thought, well, okay, I guess, you know, kids love it too. And so another year goes by, and in this discipleship class I'm teaching, a couple of students, these are new converts, would stay after the class, after everybody left, and they'd come up and whisper to me and say, hey, We noticed that you're kind of contradicting some of the stuff that we're hearing on Sundays. Are you like doing this on purpose? And I'm like, I'm just trying to do what I can to preach what's in the Bible. I'm not like, I wasn't like listening to the sermon, like coming in Sunday night to teach a class and like, let me correct what went on. I wasn't doing that. I was just, you know, uh, thus speak of the Lord God of hosts. Let's, let's discuss. That's all I was doing. (laughs) Okay. And. The church hires a very successful businessman who's black and in a suburban white church in in Iowa, which is 97% white as a state anyway, but in a suburban white megachurch where most of the people have Bush Cheney bumper stickers than even a Jesus fish, a very successful tall black man's going to stand out in that church. Just is. Kind of like when I started going to speaking at black churches with my buddy Jonathan, I was the only white guy there. I kind of stood out. Okay. And they bring him in because giving is going down in the church. And so this guy is a very successful corporate executive. They ask him to do an audit of the church. And um, he comes back and he says, well, here's what I can tell you. Attendance is up, but giving is down. The reason why is people come here 
It's new. It's fresh. It gives them a perspective on the church and Christianity that defies their their stale stereotypes, and they like it at first. And, and it's leading people to Christ. But then when they need to grow and mature, and those are the people that are going to give in any church, are the more mature believers, right? When, it, when they need to mature and they're not spiritually fed, they go someplace else where they are. We got to teach more Bible. They didn't like that message. They got rid of the guy. And it caused a huge schism. And so I find out that our elders were going to host a meeting at one of the elders' homes, kind of in secret, Invite only about what to do about this church. And I'm like, hey, that's gossip. We don't need to be doing that. And and I and and so I show up to crash this event, this meeting. I was not invited. I showed up, but I showed up. I show up and I see a few of the people that I'm discipling in my newcomers class are there. And so right away I'm like, whoa. And then I find out that these elders have actually not met for like two years. They've been kind of replaced by like a board of governors. They haven't met for like two years. And this is where I learned with the proverb, one side seems true until you hear the other side. This was the first time in my walk I truly learned what that meant. And then the ministry leadership of this church showed up to crash it as well. And, and, they, and so now both sides, this guy they had do the audit, and one of the pastors are like holding court in front of all these people outdoors in this elder's yard. It's like a town hall debate. Douglas Lincoln, man, going down right now. And one of the things that the pastor said was, people are still being saved by blank church. And one of the guys that I was, in, that I was teaching in my discipleship class that was here, invited, is standing next to me. And he looked at me and he whispered in my ear and he said, did, did our church just say we save people and not the Holy Spirit? In other words, like there's some way that if we didn't do it some clever, fun way, people would just go to hell if we weren't here to dress up the gospel or water it down, as the case may be. And I don't know how that meeting ended. I turned around and walked out at that point. I was very dejected. I called another member of the pastoral staff that I was very close to. And I admitted to him that for the last few months, as my show has grown and my faith has begun to grow, people have asked me, where do you go to church? And I haven't really felt comfortable about recommending coming to this church and I really couldn't figure out why until I was at this meeting tonight and he said to me on the phone brother you can't go to a church that you would not recommend other people attend and so Jeff and everyone else that's the best advice I could give you it's the advice that was given to me if you wouldn't recommend I mean for me at this point if your church isn't open or at least has some plan or is attempting to be, I wouldn't. I would not attend a church that is not open. Physically, I wouldn't. I would not. But I'm also in, a, in one of the freest states in the country. There's no excuse for any church. Unless it's got 50 members and they're all above the age of 80 or with diabetes or some comorbidity, no church in the state of Iowa should not be physically open. Period. I'd never attend one that wasn't. Wouldn't be doing it at this point. Now there's other places where there's different things going on. But but rather than get into the specifics of the reopening and this issue alone, I think it would come down as a general rule. Would you recommend other people go to the church you go to? Would you recommend that they could get fed there? That they could serve with 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 
with distinction there, that they would be, that it was worth the time that they are sacrificing to do so is what I mean. Would you recommend that? Would, hey, come to where we go. And if the answer is no, that's when I think it's time to leave. And if the answer is yes, but we have some issues, then, you know, you're in a relationship. You work through those issues. Now, the other time mentioned, there's two times we've left a church. The other time, still adore that church to this day. I was on the teaching team there. We used to play those messages on the show sometimes. It just came down to as our kids hit teenage years, you know, we were in the same, you see the same thing, it, it, this church is in our neighborhood and you see the same dynamic in our neighborhood. Right now, like the last two years, we have gotten more trick-or-treaters than we got the entire time our own kids were of that age. Because when we, this, so this neighborhood was built in 1990, we moved in in 2006. As we were moving in, the families that planted this neighborhood's children are largely grown up and moving out or were high school age, right? And, and our kids are just now of school age. Now that our kids are getting older, we have three teenagers now, 19, 15, 13. Now our neighborhood is full of little kids now because the neighborhood has turned over. We just happened to move into the neighborhood before it did. Same thing happened at our church. We were one of the few families there with kids our own age. In fact, I think in the children's ministry, Zoe, who our, our youngest daughter, who I refuse to refer to as the middle child, she had, I think, one or two other girls her age. And at that age, they're always getting into fights and arguments. And so if there's one falling out, she's isolated. You know what I'm saying? And there were a lot of girl drama falling out. And so we just, Amy and I just made the decision. We had to go somewhere. During this stage of our life, we kind of had to prioritize what the kids needed more than us. And right now, they need more of a network of, of socialization around them than the current church that we were in could provide. And so that's the only reason that we left. I mean, that was a terribly, I, I, I hated that conversation with our pastor. Pastor Bob used to be on our show several times during, over those years. Love him to this day. It just, it just, at the stage of life we were at with our kids, they needed more than that current local church could provide them. Only reason why. So, I hope that my own ex here's the other reason jeff I, i'm care i don't you know what and i get brother you're and you're you're serving you know in a pretty big cause at the moment i don't know the specifics of how your church is addressing racial reconciliation i don't, I don't know i don't want to you can't you know we only have so much time to quantify what does it mean by looking at their hires i don't know what that means are, are, are we like you know Here's our token secularist, token lefty. Well, then, I mean, I'd get thee to a nunnery right away. Is it just somebody who's, is it somebody who loves the Lord, but maybe has a bit of a different spin on things than me? Well, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, I, that's, I can't crack that nut from afar and wouldn't even presume to. And I'm, I don't have any apostolic authority to do so anyway. But that's why I chose to answer your question because I'm getting this question quite a bit, frankly. I, I can't tell you how many, how many of you I have heard from around the country incredibly disappointed in your own churches at a time that you feel like you really need that to rely on more than any other and they're just kind of cowering in fear. I, I have just, I've gotten that note a lot, a lot. Um, that's why I'm thankful for my own church in this regard. It's, it's not as open as I would make it open 
but it's trying. It's trying to navigate things. We're like all in the sanctuary together, for example. And it's a large church. So, you know, and, and maybe if I knew more of our, my own church's specifics, I might make the same decisions they do, right? I don't have to, I'm not the pastor making decisions with 5,000 members and not knowing all of their pre-existing conditions and maladies. I don't, it's, so it's easy for me to say it would be more open if I were in charge, but I'm not. And since I'm not, I don't know all they're navigating. Here's what I can tell you, though, when I see in so many emails from all of you around the country struggling with your churches that are in cowering fear. It makes me very thankful that my church is at least having this argument. We're at least debating this. We brought in a guest speaker from Knoxville, Tennessee last week who's had coronavirus. And the entire message was about, you know, hey, got to wear a mask. Cool. Fine. But why is the church cowering? What kind of witness is that to the culture? Cowering in fear like this. We should be the ones, hey, there have been examples in church history of the church shutting down for pandemics. It has happened. But it's got to be, you got to give me more than 0.014% of Americans are in hospitals right now. And so that's why we can't have the building open for another year. You got to give me more than that. Okay. Luther literally ran a reformation while the black plague was going on. Literally had literally was writing out rules and regulations, even though he hated papal authority. He was writing out rules and regulations for church leaders of when to leave villages and towns when the plague came. And his whole thing was, we should be like the last people leaving. This world is not our home. We should be the first people willing to live our lives, one, without being stupid, but to live our lives, and then two, lay down our lives for those who are suffering. So, my answer to you, Jeff, and to all of you that have asked me this question, would you recommend... And I think this goes for coronavirus or racial reconciliation or whatever new thing we have that we're going to be debating and discussing amongst ourselves a year from now. Would you recommend someone go to your church? And if the answer is no, I'd leave. If the answer is, yeah, yeah, but yeah, that you know what? There's plenty of times in our marriage my wife has been like, yeah, but... You know, has your wife ever been? Yeah, but true. Aaron, you're soon will be. Trust me. Okay. <laughs> so if it's yeah, but you stick, you know, and you try to work through those issues. But if it's a no, that's when I'd leave. You guys have any thoughts on this? Yeah. Uh, well, th- this is a different question for a Catholic than it is a. Pro- it, ju- it just sure. It just is sure. Oh, I mean, we can go to parish to parish, and there's there's liberal pastors and conservative uh, pastors, but it, it's just a fundamentally uh, different question uh, from our perspective. But I think, you know, holistically, you want to make sure that you are in a place where it, it's, it, this is a cr- not the crime, but the cover-up t- to some extent. And here's what I mean by that. It, it, sin and darkness comes after every single church. It's not a surprise that people stumble. You you can't you don't handle things as well as as you would have. I mean, every church, Catholic, Protestant, or otherwise. Um, but 
to me, and you're far away, this is tough for you. And this is why I think you have a lot of frustration. Like you, you need to count on your church right. to do things on your behalf that right. you're frustrated it's not doing right now. But in terms, or maybe you have people that can do this on your behalf. You, you, if if these errors are there, I, I, I before leaving, I think you need to address them head on and see how they respond. Because if they respond in good faith. Well, then you're in a place with a bunch of people at feet of clay, and you simply don't want to cast them over uh, board out of some sort of sense of self righteousness. But if listen, if they're if they prove to be con men, and there are con men, and they just aren't willing or capable of going there, well, then then you know. But I, I think all of us as men, we need to know. We need to. That's kind of our fail safe. You you got to look it in the eye, yeah, and you got to give that those other people on the other side the leadership of the church that you joined willingly. You got to give them a chance to explain themselves. So, for example, just to follow up on what you just said, and I'll throw it to you, Aaron. I just received in the last in, in the last hour an email from AMC Theaters. This is the largest theater chain in America, movie theaters, and we are in their club where you get a you know you pay a fee for a month and go see as many movies as you want. Okay, and they're asking me, do I want to renew my that they've deactivated it for the last five months because they've been closed. They're asking me, do I want to renew this now? Because by September 3rd, all of their screens from August 20th to September 3rd, all between that period, all of their screens all over the country are going to be reopened. Okay, now, what does that have to do with this question? How in the world can the largest movie theater in this country the largest movie theater chain, I should say, how can it feel that it is safe for them to reopen and take in all these various people from all these various walks of life and all the liability and everything else that goes along with that, okay? How can they feel it is safe for them to open, but your local church does not? How do you possibly, how do you justify that? I can't, which is why here in Iowa, if there, I would not attend a church anymore. No matter how much we loved it before this, if they were still closed, we wouldn't be going. But if you're in a state, well, we got some regulations. Is the AMC movie theater going to be open in your state? Going to be open down the street here in the next three weeks? It's a great example. Then, then, co- the, then, the, then the church ought to be open. Because okay? it covers so much. You don't need to think like you're, you have to be some in-depth theologian. Just go in with that one That's question. That's one example. How can AMC theaters, 700 screens nationwide... How can they, and, and people, hand, hand hand to mouth, popcorn, pop. How can they feel it is safe for them to open up and do business, but we cannot open up our church? That's a question I'd ask, Aaron. Yes, and it it always bears repeating in in, in terms of the living out of, of what we're talking here. Always, always check your motivations. I'm not going to say this as a blanket statement. I, I, I have said this as a blanket statement before, but I've just found... Just because I don't trust my own heart because, you know, the heart is deceitful uh, (laughs) above all things, always doubt your own motivations. Don't be insecure. I mean, the Holy Spirit can lead us and does lead us to make the decisions that we need to, to make in order to honor and glorify God. But I always find at least once, what is my motivation for saying, doing, uh, making this decision? Always check your motivation once. Doubt your first motivation. Check it and see if it's really pure. So I would say that in, in relation to this. If you are even in the even in the um, 
the frame of mind that you're asking the question that you asked that Steve read at the beginning of the segment, if you're even in that that frame of mind, if your motivation is what's best for my family, what's best for this church family, how do I bring the most glory uh, to God through this, the position of leadership that he's put me in my family and in my church, to whatever degree that is, if that's your motivation, I think you've already at least gotten halfway to answering your own question here. Because if you are not concerned about this and your motivations are pure, then obviously, obviously you're where you you know where God wants you to be. At least that's 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 the math that I do in, in my head. And it's just again the the bottom line is check your motivations um, in in every step of the way on this because at the same time. I don't think it's right to shop around for churches. So again, all that is to say, check your own motivations. That's a great rule of thumb. And I love the idea of being skeptical of your own motivations just as a check on your own emotion. I like that as a default position as well. All right, three non-political questions. Uh, We'll lighten the mood a little bit when we come back. Stay tuned. So you got turned down for some credit you wanted. You asked, hey, your lender, what my credit report say? Or you got your credit report yourself before you applied to see what your score was. And pages and pages comes out and stuff you don't understand and dates that, you know, you don't even remember. You ever kind of feel like you're not really in charge of that? And since it's your credit score, that's your life there in that report. Maybe it should be. That, that's where ScoreMaster comes in. It was created by credit data scientists to help put you in charge of your credit score, not your lenders, but you. And the average ScoreMaster uh, can raise their credit score 61 points in 20 days or less. What does that do for you? Well, a lot. Uh, it makes it easier to get a home loan, makes it easier to buy a car, refinancing, even getting a job nowadays. A lot of employers are doing credit background checks as well. ScoreMaster wants to put you in control and you can enroll in minutes. See how many plus points you can add to your credit score. You're going to be shocked at how fast that you can do it. Just visit scoremaster.com slash Steve. Scoremaster.com slash Steve. Again, that's scoremaster.com slash Steve. Let's get to three non-political questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on The Steve Day Show. Yes, three non-political questions because we always need a little bit of a break from the demise and fall of Western civilization. Question number one, what's one subject in school that you struggled with the most and what do you think of that subject now? Uh, Math. Math, well, and shop. (laughs) Those were really the only two. Assembling (laughs) things. Yes. Math and shop were really the only two things I struggled with in school. Um, when I tried, I should throw that caveat in there. It's amazing how much better I got at science when trying. That helped. 
Uh, but no, math didn't seem to matter how much I tried. Shop. No, not happening. Those were the two subjects I struggled with in school. Um, and it's kind of funny now because one of the things I'm best at in this job, um, I, and, and I only bring that up, it's because it's my ability to do this that I think kind of sets our show apart from, you could get lots of insightful analysis from all kinds of other people, right, that do this. I think kind of what separates our show is two things. One, the direct application of a of a biblical worldview to what's going on in the news is one. But that's let's face it, that's not for everybody. Okay. Two is I suck at the math, but I'm great at deciphering your math. That's what's really, really weird. Is I'm really good at analyzing your math. I just though couldn't do your math. Meaning when we take your math and apply it to logic, and it's a little bit like um you know, I can't debate origin of species with Darwin. I can't. But his next book, Descent of Man, oh, I I can debate that. In you other bet. words, you're better at metaphysics than you are physics. There you go. That's a great way of putting it, yes. When Darwin takes the the, the scientific inquiry that he poses in, in Origin of Species and starts applying it as a philosophical treatise, as a moral framework— as as essentially a theological substitute that's that's what i am good at so i'm not good at coming up with your math i am good though when you start taking your math and applying it to as aaron put it the metaphysical issues of our day i'm good at that so i think a lot of the math teachers i had growing up would be shocked how much math i use in this show it's just other people's math (laughs) it's not mine what about you todd uh there's two one of them aaron won't be the least bit surprised about it it's technology computer i coding thing i nothing i mean when i was subbing for him when we're fired radio, here you're not going to learn to code are you uh, no no, okay. no but also just technology in general i just i'm not remotely interested in it and i get bored really fast and so all the bells and whistles that i think aaron like everything oh cool new toy i like um i'm out i don't i don't care at all you are becoming an old man yells at cloud. I, I just want you to, are. I just want it to work. Um, you get that top uh, button open like it's you know oh, Johnny Fever for Saturday night, right? I'm having this issue. Right, the cable guy is going to be coming. It's this is the third time I've had to call them it, during the lockdown, where the small box is not attaching to the big box upstairs. So I can't watch. T- I can't go down to my version of the man cave <laughs> right now. Oh no! The cable guy. There's going to be issues. And the other one is maybe uh, the most underrated Jim Carrey of Jim Carrey's movies, the cable guy, but go ahead. The other one is uh Spanish foreign language. No, no aptitude for if you don't hobla the El yeah. Spanish show. Uh, this is like playing guitar, like being able, yes. the thought of being able to do speak a foreign language or play the guitar. Sounds cool to me again. Just not see. I think I happening. could have ended up being fluent in Spanish by just, I got to the point where I don't need to take this anymore and I'm not taking it, but I was really good at it in high school. Hmm. At least, you know, I couldn't like, you know, go to Tijuana and negotiate, you know, uh, for a carpet mural in Spanish or something like that. But I mean, I got good grades in those classes. If I wanted to pursue it, I think I could have been fluid in Spanish. I I just didn't want to pursue it. I didn't fail. I mean, I, I got 
good grades, but I still for for what? Like I, like what can I say now in yeah. Spanish? Absolutely nothing. Okay. Uh, for me, it was uh, algebra. I'm great at math, not so great at algebra. I mean, once you get beyond, you know, just the basic uh, solve for X, which is easy. I mean, that's basically mathematics right there. But once you get beyond that and you have to memorize all of these functions, I mean, the, the biggest thing that helped me in algebra and algebraic and advanced math is what is it? PEMDAS or PEMDAS, whatever. That's just the, the order of order of uh of uh, uh i can't even order a function or whatever i, I don't mean i failed the quick trip managerial exam yeah and uh still bad at math or still bad at algebra today still bad at algebra today i, I kind of get well why they make you do it. it it helps your problem solving skills for sure but still just terrible at it a- alex berenson of uh you know we, who've we've had on the show he is, the he's former- the og Al- for those of you that don't remember alex berenson is the og of coronavirus skepticism like we started. We went to him when we thought we might be on the right track. Okay, so he's the OG. Is who you're talking about here? He, he yeah. brought up a really good point uh, about the 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 advanced level track of mathematics in high school ends up in calculus, and again, rightly so for it, it, it being needed in advanced sciences, physics. But he said, and I know high schools offer this, but he said uh, statistics should be more of a a default basically yeah. and look at why right yeah. now i mean numbers are just used to lie about yeah. everything see and that's the interesting thing too i was terrible it, we, I, I had to get up to trigonometry in high school to get my diploma and i mean i was terrible at it but when i took like a business math class or a statistics class i was really good at it and so i think for me it was we have to if we started applying these numbers to reason then I then you know my my brain would kind of kick in from there if they were just static equations off to themselves to decipher it, I mean I would just look up at the chalkboard at all these letters and numbers and it just it Spanish frankly made more sense to me mm-hmm. so honestly as far as statistics go the last five months have been a huge help for me because yeah. it's forced me to actually yeah okay so we can't actually look at raw numbers so what's a good way to look at this data set or compare mm-hmm. these two countries okay well we'll go by per 100,000 sure. then you can further stratify from there uh question number two what's one movie or movie series that was good but you'd be fine with being remade that was good but i'd be fine with being remade not necessarily today but someday um within your life you want to take this one first i want to think about it for a second a series well i i we just watched a version of it my girls so fell in love with uh the hunger games yeah uh that they wanted to watch more with jennifer lawrence so we watched uh the uh one of the x-men i would say the x-men the x-men was undeniably good overall no, but good overall. i think it did well i'm not think it it didn't achieve avengers greatness agree it potentially could so the I would, second I would x-men that. movie is very good i think x-men days of future past is one of my favorite comic book oh, movies. there's I, great movies I, in a there, couple yeah. of them the other ones are kind of like eh, they're okay right yeah, that's a good series though that had some good highlights that you could think could do better with how about um how about the narnia films that's what I was going to Is that what you're going to go with? And yeah. it, you know, Walden Media was all in on those and they stopped. Was it Voyage of the Dawn Treader was the last one they yep. did, right? So, And they're supposed to be doing it on Netflix, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, and I'm a little worried about that given who Netflix is. But my understanding reading about it is C.S. Lewis's estate or his one of his surviving 
an heir or somebody is overseeing it, similar to how the same thing with Tolkien when Peter Jackson took it on, his his oldest surviving son basically oversaw the the uh, the production to make sure it was true to his father's work. So I'm hoping it doesn't get uh, Netflix. Do we find out, you know, that uh, it, it sitting in the silver chair is is a tranny who was gender confused? You know, when Netflix gets their hands on it, you know, that that might be. That might be an interesting take on that character. The tranny chair? Yeah, yeah that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah. I'm fine. The Voyage of the Dawn, tra- that was... The lion, ne- the witch, and the wardrobe very- it comes out of the closet in the Netflix version. Yeah. 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 So I, I am a huge fan of the first two movies that they made. Yeah. Uh, they are, they're not just good. They're, they are Agreed. great. Agreed. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say Chronicles of Narnia. They just need to stick with it. Just start and stick with it. Start and stick with it, and then you'll be fine. Uh, those, those those would be a classic instantly if they could just stick through the whole thing. I'm really interested to hear y'all's uh, response on this one. If you had to spend a week in one of the following locations, which would you choose and why? So you okay. had to spend an entire week here. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, spend the night, everything. Hill House, Arkham Asylum, Overlook Hotel, or Allodale Hall. Wow, those are great options. I don't know what most of them are. Uh, Hill House, The Haunting of Hill House is a classic Shirley Jackson haunted house tale that has was made into a TV series by Netflix that next to Stranger Things is like really? one of their most popular That's series. Really scary too. And it's really well yeah. done. Uh, the sequel comes out this fall, I believe. Um, the Overlook... Well, before you said the Overlook, what was the other one you said? I forgot. Arkham Asylum. Arkham Asylum. You know what that is. That's I where the villains of the Batman yeah, that's villains the are. Yeah. What are the other two? The, um, I'm going to go with the Overlook would be my choice. Although Arkham. It, is the Overlook the Shining? Yes. Yeah. Oh. That's that's the actual Shining Hotel is the Overlook. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real place. And Stephen King got the story when him and his wife were on a book tour early in their marriage. I think it was like a second or third book. And they were on their way back, and they heard, heard about the Scenic Hotel in Colorado. And it was late summer, and so this thing's getting ready to close. And so they decide to stay, and they're one of the last guests in the hotel as it's transitioning to close down for the fall and the winter. And he gets up in the middle of the night, can't sleep, goes out to smoke a cigarette out on the patio. And he's watching the staff and stuff, you know, leave. And he just starts thinking about how remote and everything this place is. And he's like... Could you imagine getting cabin? What would it be like to have this cavernous place all to yourself and in, 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 in your own mind shut off from the world for a winter? And that's where the that's where the idea for the story came from. They stayed in room. Him and his wife did 227, which is where that's the haunted room. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the host, the room that hosts the, the paranormal activity in the story. So. Uh, there's been a couple of times that Amy has actually contemplated having us go there for our anniversary or something. It's, it's open it, now. Right? Yeah, that, that's the hotel is still open. Yeah, so I would choose the Overlook. What was the fourth one? Uh, Allodale Hall from Crimson Peak. Yes. Did you ever watch that one? That movie, Crimson I, Peak. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's. I think it. Uh, the other three are far better choices in my view. I think I'm going to Colorado. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say the Overlook Hotel as well, just because of the view. I mean, if you're spending a night in Arkham Asylum, something has gone really, really wrong in your life. Yeah. Uh, Hill House, uh, it's just way too creepy. 
I mean, it's all the remoteness, none of the none of the majesty of yeah. Overlook Hotel. So Overlook Hotel is is, is the one that I would uh, that I would stay at. All sure. right, before we get in our final thoughts, folks, you know the same thing's gone on with our pets' food that uh, has happened to our own. That's why we've turned the supplement industry into one of the more lucrative ones in the world because a lot of the prebiotics and probiotics and vitamins and minerals, omega oils, nutrients that we need have been stripped out of our food so they can be mass produced and have a long shelf life. Same things happen to a lot of the foods that our pets eat as well. And that's where Rough Greens VitaSmart comes in. It puts all that good stuff back in because it's not a new dog food. So this isn't about, hey, I, you know, this dog food, uh, my dog likes it. It's affordable. How do we know we're going to like this? No, it's not that. It's a dog food supplement. You actually mix it in with your dog's food and apparently it take, makes it taste even better. At least that's according to our dog, Cap, who loves this stuff. All right. It's just a powder you mix with your dog's food each day to put all the good stuff back in. And they want to offer you right now a 14-day jumpstart bag for only $14.95 to see if you see uh, an improvement in your dog in two weeks or less. When you go to roughgreens.com slash blaze, R-U-F-F is how it's spelled for roughgreens.com slash blaze. For the overtime today... um, I did a little research and I lined up the 2016 electoral college map with states that have already said they're not playing college football this fall. And to see, because, you know, people, is it, this is all political. Is it? Is there, could you draw any conclusions from this, from, from this data? We're going to discuss that. And if so, what are they? And if not, Why? So we're going to get into that in the overtime today. BlazeTV.com slash Dace is where you can go. If you're not already a Blaze TV subscriber, go there, get a discounted subscription today at BlazeTV.com slash Dace. If you are a Blaze TV subscriber already, cool for you. Just hang out for a little while. That'll be posted later today right there at BlazeTV.com slash Dace. Any final words, gentlemen, before we check out? I don't know if you saw this, but there are some Iowa football parents with medical and or science backgrounds that are pushing back hard on the decision to get rid of football i don't know if you're going to be able to get your football back almost certainly no but expose these people who did this at the very least at the very least these big 10 presidents have an obligation i mean if hey if you're an sec acc football fan you don't want your players dying out on the field either right wouldn't you like to know with all these medical high flute medical schools in the big 10 what is the information because i'll tell you what they haven't shared it with their student athletes yet they haven't shared it with their coaches yet so if nothing else, let's get some answers because maybe there's something there we need to know. There isn't. You'd think if there was, they'd tell us, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for today. We are back at it again tomorrow with the Dace Group Roundtable and a Feedback Friday. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.